You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommying While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jafri. And assalamualaikum. This is Zeba Hassan. Um, how has your week been, Ozma? Yeah, you were talking about living a lifetime in the last week. <clears throat> I was um, watching the Saturday acceptance mm. speech with my sons because my daughter had zero interest. I cannot get that girl <laughs> to care. <laughs> but my boys, they understood. I was like, this is history, guys. We have to watch every acceptance speech and every inauguration because this is American history happening right now. You're living it. And my little guy was closer to the TV and he kept turning around and watching. Cause I'm like, I don't know about you girl, but I was bawling my eyes out. Like as soon as it started, even before anybody took the stage, I was just crying. Mm -hmm. But you know, he didn't say one thing. He kept looking and usually when he sees me cry, which is very rare, he will come up and hug me and tell me not to be sad. But for some reason he understood that these tears just needed to happen. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was just really, really important to me. So yeah, boys need to see their mamas cry, and we need to cry because history is being made. You know, regardless of what which way it went, I think the acceptance speech is a historical thing, and you know, it was it was really important. And I'm glad that my sons got to witness it, and I got to be there with them. So, tell me about your week. I'm just going to allude to it that this has just been a very stressful time in our family. Um, for those of you, you know, I'm just uh, without na- saying anything, it's just mental health issues obviously are very prevalent right now with the pandemic, um, teenagers, her- hormones, emotions, you know, check in on your kids. That's that's the one thing I'll have to say is right now that it is a little bit stressful for I think a lot of parents, especially with teenagers when their routines and all that are not necessarily um, something that they can count on, uh, given that a lot of these kids are virtual, the skyrocketing of COVID, um, just to name a few things. So yeah, you know, every parent has their own thing that they have to deal with. And in our house, we're obviously dealing with some of these uh, ramifications. Uh, be mindful of it, check in on your children, love them unconditionally. That's just kind of um, what I'll say about that right now. Um, again, watching the speech, I feel like both parties, whether or not you loved them, um, you know, going into it in the sense that it was for me, as we talked about earlier, kind of like a vote, vote that was anti-Trump. But the fact that they both gave speeches that I have to say were amazing and excellent, gave me goosebumps. This is the first time that I probably didn't cry and you did. Um, so I, I want that to be... <laughs> noted because i'm usually the one that's write crying down, on the show but write it down friday the 13th of course that's what's going to happen but it was probably the one time i didn't cry but i definitely have to say like you know and, and, and probably part of it is from a, a level of cynicism um a level of what where i think we're going to kind of touch base on today so it so i get your point you probably c- cried because it was like cathartic and it was almost like a release of tension and stress that we've been slowly building up like through the race through watching like the the negative rhetoric the the anger and animosity that inevitably is coming up and some of those bad feelings that we've 
that come to the forefront, that's come to the surface that we um, as Americans are now witness of. Like, it's not necessarily um, a victory that I would say is a clear cut victory, uh, to be honest with you. So I um, am cautiously optimistic in the sense that perhaps it'll be slightly different than the previous presidency. But the reality of the situation is I'm not sure. I think um, I'm at a stage where I'm like going to give this take it a chance, but I just feel like a lot of damage has been done um, to, to the nation in general. So I'm not as um, excited necessarily about it as a lot of other people, but that's, uh, you know, that's my mini soapbox, but I know you're going to have another soapbox um, for us today. So Osma, could you let us know what is our soapbox for today? Well, I'm glad you talked about um, having a healthy dose of optimism, but maintaining your cynicism because there's still so much work to do. I feel like Saturday was our day of rest um, and like, okay, process what's happening because, you know, we knew the lawsuits were coming and all of that, but we just kind of needed to absorb that moment and then starting Sunday, work immediately started. And so we said uh, on last week's episode of Denial, watch Georgia because what's happening in Georgia is really, really important. So remember, the Supreme Court now has a Republican majority. And no, we are not anti any party. Like all parties have a right to their platforms, but it matters who your judges are. So with the death of RBG, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and the confirmation of um, the latest Supreme Court judge who is, you know, um, who's made no... uh, secret of her beliefs on women's health rights and reproductive rights it, it our supreme court is gone like right now the majority lies with the republican party the senate our upper house that has a lot of power guys is also a republican majority um, and they tantrum their way to block legislation key legislation during the end of the obama administration they they've pushed through a lot of stuff these last four years um and this election 2020 we actually lost seats in the lower house in the house of representatives so the democratic party lost seats and this is again going to be important in terms of legislation um, that gets passed in our country so bottom line senate seats matter and all eyes are in georgia for this reason because neither of the candidates running for the two senate seats that were up this year were able to get a majority over 50 percent of the votes they have an automatic runoff election that runoff election is going to be january 5th 2021 in the meantime there are 23,000 teenagers who are going to age in they will become 18 years old by january 5th and will be eligible to vote and the good news is they're allowed to register right now while they're 17. So there's a couple of movements that are working to register these 23,000 voters because, I mean, when a vote is within 4,000 votes, voters, these things matter. So 23,000 is not a small number. Georgia, with the help of Stacey Abrams and other sheroes, has done amazing work to end voter intimidation, end um, voter fraud, end um, things like, you know, what her opponent and the eventual governor of Georgia did was close a bunch of polling stations in an election year. Who the heck does that, you know? So she's worked around it. We're linking those organizations that are supporting the two, um, supporting, they're actually supporting registering these 23,000 voters. The idea is that these 23,000 voters are going to vote for Raphael Warren. Warnock 
and the other candidate is John Ossoff. They are a reverend and a filmmaker, and they are running on the Democratic tickets. Um, it's going to be important to get these guys uh support. So if you see those two names, we want you to know that those are the good guys. We'll be putting them up in our stories too, so you can follow along. And of course, in our show notes, you will have links to the two organizations that are registering these teenagers, and they are the New Georgia Project and Black Votes Matter. So grassroots organizations are always close to our hearts. We hope they're going to be close to yours, and that we'll take our eyes off of Georgia and start working our hands for the Georgia cause. That's our soapbox for today. Yeah, I mean, this is the election that really shows and proves, right, that your vote does actually matter. Because when, when you're down to in the hundreds or the thousands, every little vote is being counted. One, in this unprecedented election where so many people came through, we were so close. And that goes to show you the first time around when Trump was running you know, you didn't really know what he was about. This time, we we do know what it's about. And we do know why he was running. And we, we're like, you still managed to vote for him. So from denial comes anger and frustration, because you're just like, how is it that the first time around, you voted for him? And now you're still voting for him with all the rhetoric and everything that's going on right now. But let's just be honest, everybody has a right to vote their conscience. I totally understand that. Our issue was trying to understand how that particular vote could be conscionable as both Muslims and American in this current democracy, because, you know, we our life, liberty and some parts of our pursuit of happiness have been deterred and hindered with some of the speech and rhetoric that this other previous uh, the previous presidency actually said to us. So how in the world can we not be angry at this and of over a third of Muslim people actually voted for him. So we we didn't necessarily want a Muslim mom to kind of bear the brunt of potential judgment because we did um, actually go and <laughs> ask a couple of people that have voted like why and they didn't really want to come out. And the reality of the situation, I was talking um, to the love of my life and, you know, he didn't vote for Trump. I just want that to be said, but he kind of did give me a perspective about why certain demographics, potential voters would actually vote for him. So instead of inviting a mom, I decided to invite my husband, Zephyr Hassan, who isn't a Muslim mom, but he definitely uh, got me to understand a little bit about why the Muslim voter would vote for somebody like Trump. Assalamualaikum, Zephyr. Assalamualaikum, everybody, and thanks for having me. I do want to note, as I said before the show, I was quote unquote invited to <laughs> come onto the show today, meaning be there on time. Now, don't be late. <laughs> and so that's how I wound up coming in today. Well, I'm glad to know that. So, Zephyr, we usually start by asking our mom guests to tell us their mom's story. But in your case, we're going to ask you to talk a little bit about your kids, if you're comfortable, and then your dadding philosophy. And then you can wrap it all up by talking about how wonderful a mom your wife is. Yeah, the last one's the easiest. She's actually a fantastic mom and wife, and we've been the kids have been very blessed on that. In terms of parenting philosophy, you know, I'd be I'd probably keep it relatively short. We just I think we share a view that environment is everything, right? And so we want the kids to be able to talk, and we're not 
demanding from themselves perfection or even from ourselves. On the contrary, I think our hope is to get out of them, get them talking to us so we can sort of, as I say, head shape them and uh, or as you know, my parents say, brainwash it must brainwash <laughs> the, the the kids and but you got to get them talking to do that and so we put a we put a you know you know a premium on trying to get them to talk to us and just sort of hear and understand where they are and then we can kind of roll out the velvet gloves and i don't want to come across as somebody who you know pretends to know the answers this is a journey we all go through the journey i think a lot of muslim families i think a lot of american families like a lot of american muslim families face the same tensions and when i talk to people like at my office they'll say we had a teen drama night last night <laughs> and that happens in our house sometimes too and i think instead of pretending that that's not true we probably all gain a lot more by understanding that we have these things in common usually inside of a probability distribution that's somewhat normal and then there are times where it's outside it's on the tail end one way or the other and then maybe you might need something a little bit more professional i think we've been fortunate to be inside the middle distribution and probably you know through family tradition and all the rest education on the healthier end but it's not like that for everybody and we don't judge I mean, we're trying. Everybody is doing the best that, that we can. And, um, you know, just to to, to 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 go with what he was saying, like the fact that we actually do complement each other, you know, um, parenting style wise, I, I appreciate it because I definitely would not be able to do this um, without him. So I appreciate that. So thank you, honey. The meat of our discussion today is the Muslim vote, the selection. And we wanted to talk about this 35% of Muslim voters, which I will preface it by saying um, the AP uh, vote survey was actually done prior to November 3rd. So these numbers may change, but what we've been shown is that 35% of Muslim voters mm -hmm. eligible to vote said that they would vote for Trump this year. Why on earth would they think that's okay? Zephyr, can you help us understand this? I'm not sure that I can, but I can take a shot at it. And first, I think context is everything. And if we rob this discussion of its context, we might rob it of its meaning. And I don't know if you guys did any homework about vote totals in the country as a whole. But if you said to me 65-35, I bet if we went and looked at Reagan-Mondale in um, 84, you're probably, Mondale probably did better than 35. Right. So against historical norms and how people vote, I'd be interested to see what a 6535 looks like. But I think most people would say 6535 mm -hmm. is really quite decisive. And so I think because you guys may feel so strongly the other way, you're looking at the 35 and you're like, that number should yeah. be zero. <laughs> and, that, and that may not give that may not yeah. give. Um, respect and the respect to the breadth of diversity in a community. But I would say 6535 is pretty overwhelming and be interesting to actually look that up and see how many times the numbers have been that skewed. I'm guessing yeah. not very often. This one looks like it's going to be 306 electoral votes for Joe, no. Joe Biden with a pretty high, with a some probability that you wind up at around 306 electoral votes for, for Joe Biden. And he's coming in at 5 million votes ahead on the popular vote. We're nowhere near 6535. You actually mentioned, Henny, like the, uh, 
the demographic of the Muslim were, were very diverse. And I wanted to tell you, like, I was looking up uh, the, Pure Re the Pew Research Center, and I just wanted to, to name a little bit of, uh, tell you guys a little bit about this. Like, Muslim Americans are one of the most ethnically and racially diverse groups in the United States. A large segment, 41% of Muslims identify as white, one third are Asian, including South Asian, one fifth, 20% uh, are black, and about 8% are Hispanic. So the demographic diversity of Muslim Americans translates to a very unique profile when it actually comes to policy and policy decision, right? So on a moral and social issues, Muslims are actually closer to the conservative Republican party, but on matters of like cultural and religious religious diversity, they are more in tune with the more liberal Democratic Party. So I think that that's something that we need to understand a little bit about the, 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 the way Muslims have voted in the past and potentially why how they would vote in the future. What I'd say is there is diversity in the thinking and there are some there are some people here who would say that from our community that, for example, an issue like abortion really does matter to them. And there are other people here that might say in the country that say that taxation matters to them, that they enjoyed the Trump tax cuts. And those things do wind up mattering quite a bit. And I think you guys even started outside the community sort of saying, you now know who this guy is and, so now, and how could you still wind up voting for him? And I think what's so important in analyzing anything like this is to understand to me the role of bias and background and context when you make a decision, whether it's to vote or other decisions that you might make. So let's just take a moment and talk about O.J. Simpson. But what I would say there is a primarily African-American jury let O.J. Simpson off the hook, and I believe he was guilty, right? And if you look at Rodney King, a primarily white jury let the cops off the hook, even though there's video of them beating Rodney King well past what was necessary, right? And so you have you, the role that race, for example, or the role that, well, in this case, race, plays in people's perception of innocence or guilt in the case of whites, how they viewed those cops, in the case of African-Americans, how they viewed OJ is huge. And it colors your perception of what is right and wrong and how you wind up making a decision. And that's just so important to understand whenever you're looking at a vote count or anything else. And those are a couple of examples. I think one, what, what I would say, being, being neither white nor black, is that they were all wrong. <laughs> those cops should have been convicted. OJ should have been convicted. But the race and the background, the, the relationship with the police that each of the communities that were the jurors had informed how they made that decision. And so I think that is pretty fundamental to how we, should, we ought to be thinking about these things. I think that um, that's important because um, when looking at the same data by the AP, the Associated Press, the top three issues that um, Biden voters said they cared about was the pandemic, climate, which, you know, I love planet Earth, but I don't get all of this like to do about uh, climate control. But, I, you know, all right, fine. And then racism. And then the top three issues for people who were planning on voting for Trump were immigration, abortion, and economy. And then all um, voters, I think the majority, not all, but the majority of voters, it was like 41% said the pandemic was number one 
uh, regardless of their party affiliation. So just looking at these three different issues that the voters of each party cared about, I mean, when you're talking about the background that people come with to approach them, what is what are we missing that there's such divisiveness in even the basic platforms that we care about? Like, what are we not doing right that we're not finding more unity or more direction uh, in in the way that we want this country to go? Yeah. So to me, um, the barbells have taken over. And what I mean by that is if I set out a normal distribution of voters, then what you'd want to see happen is that you've got one end that's to the right and they're just not going to move off of that. You've got another end that's to the left and they're not going to move on that. In a healthy functioning society then, and I think what happened a lot of times historically is that the two parties are now fighting for the votes in the middle like this part of that normal distribution. They want to get to 51 in the middle part of that distribution. And that's the name of the game. And so what would wind up happening if you take the 92 election between Clinton and Bush won, right? The big issues were 33% taxation, marginal taxation versus 36% marginal taxation. And my feeling here is that over the last 30 years, this has changed where if you want to, be the final candidate at the end, right? The final Democrat uh, nominee or Republican nominee, Mm -hmm. then in order to have gotten there, you really had to play to the base and you really had to play to the left base or to the right base. And you had to do that um, endorsing things that make you then regret where you are when it comes time for the general election. So you can't just say defund the police is ridiculous, nor can you say that the Muslim ban is totally ridiculous. And because if you do that, then there's a base of followers that will not allow you to become one of those final two. And I think that's super important. But I also want to pick up on something that you said there. I I wasn't aware of the three issues that you just mentioned. But if you list them off again um, on the Republican vote, you could see why there's a set of Muslims who might view those three topics as being super important. And I actually think this occurs in other communities. I think there are a lot of people in the American Catholic community that, you know, we have tremendous respect for and do lots of, you know, interfaith work with them for the poor and all the rest with our Muslim community. But I think there are a lot of single issue voters there around the topic of right to life, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll wind up in that party. And as I said to Zeba, you know, that's so important to them that the conservative person, Trump, could get onto Fox News, sit down at the table, reach behind his head, pull down a zipper, and a lizard comes out, and they'll still be like, yeah, but what about the Supreme Court and abortion? They'll still want to be all over that thing. And it's just as their single-issue voter, and that's where they're going to be. And the fact that that particular president you know, may, have, may display various types of values that are totally incompatible with what I understand to be teachings of the church is irrelevant because they're honed in on that one issue about um, the right to choose and the rights of the vulnerable fetus as they see it. And so that's just so important to them that it trumps all the rest of it. No pun yeah, that's where my mind is still blown and I'm never going to be able to wrap my brain around it. Say, but what are you thinking? You know, we've always talked about this before. Like I am, you know, probably more moderate and actually believe it or not more on the right side of moderate you know we've talked about that openly but because of certain 
um, racial things. I've voted against what I would normally vote for because I feel I agree with what Zephyr's saying. The, the barbells have taken over. The extremes of both parties have taken over. So then somebody like myself, that's literally right side of the middle for a lot of things, because I am in that demographic, you know, we had our abortion conversation, but I'm also like not willing to have the government come in and take over or take over the rights of other people. So I'm, I'm open enough in, uh, to understand that other people feel differently and I, I'm willing to vote that way. But the reality of the situation is I would love to have a more moderate um, candidate in general that actually practices what they preach on, you know, a, a social, economic, um, domestically, like overseas. And I just, I'm not as optimistic that even with the change, the quote unquote tide being changed, that it's just going to, I feel like it's going to be just more of the same to be very honest with you. And, and, and history has kind of showed that, but they just put a different face on it, but it, it is more of the same. Is he better than Trump? Yes, because I feel like that aggression, the way that he talks, the way that, I mean, he definitely has some mental health issue. Let's just we talk, open up with that. And then we're just gonna talk about that. So I, I do I want him to be president? No, but I feel like, you know, when we think, oh, the tides are changing, I don't, feel within my gut that that's going to be the case. So I don't know where that leads. So that does make me angry, like to go back to our original topic of anger, like what is wrong with our society or with what has happened to our democracy, or maybe it's always been there and I'm just becoming quote unquote woke or more awake to the situation. What can we do as a community to kind of address these types of issues I don't have the answer to that, but I feel like we need to start having these types of conversations because I am very leery of passing this down to the next generation. Yeah. I mean, Zephyr's talking about voters um, voting based on single ticket issues. And to me, that says that, you know, and I remember being in high school and being the opposite party and saying, I don't care about what else such and such believes as long as they're pro-life, I'm voting for them, which as a high schooler with the full course load and, you know, my stupid high school drama, I didn't have time to research the other issues, but okay. I was in high school. It was my first time voting. I get a pass. But for grown adults who have vested interests in knowing all of the issues, where are we going wrong? And I think that that is more of a systemic problem. It's not just in the classroom. It is happening outside of the classroom where, you know, going back to another reference that for me, there's brainwashing happening where people are not learning the issues. And I think that's the situation. So on um, observing and on serving some of these uh Facebook groups and conversations that are happening, Muslims that are justifying their vote for Trump are saying we voted for because we like the tax breaks. We voted like we talked about on abortion. We voted because democratic foreign policy has historically not been friendly to Muslim nations. We had the drone attacks happening under Obama. In fact, we had the um, asylee crisis starting under Obama where you know people were being caged. So it didn't start um, during the last administration, but it certainly worsened 
worsened and got a lot uglier, right? Um, Israeli support, even though the Democratic Party has always talked about a two-state solution, they've never actually done it. It's only been empty words. And so people who voted for Trump saw the duplicity in international relations, pro-Israeli, and we're talking about um, being pro-Israeli as being anti-Muslim, but being anti-Israeli is not being anti-Semitic, if that makes sense to anybody, okay? We love us, our Jewish friends, okay? But what we don't love is a government um, promoting itself as protecting Jewish traditions and Jewish people, but acting in, entirely against Jewish law and destroying people's livelihood for generations now. So Trump, Muslim Trump voters have called this, like this is one of their biggest issues. And I believe Unfiltered and Sweetened Podcast has an episode on this, on the APAC issue. Um, uh, Biden has spoken out against BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanction uh, of Israel and its products. And that's problematic. And so for a lot of Muslim voters, especially like Palestinian voters, that's like done. We're done with you if you're going to tell us that we don't have the right to free speech and the right to decide what we spend our money on. Like that sounds undemocratic to us. And then support of free speech and democracy everywhere else, like in France, uh, America, Obama, Biden, you know, as the faces of have said that that's okay. But when a Muslim person does it over here, they're anti-Semitic or they're like causing riots or, you know, whatever, that's problematic. And then of course we have the Patriot Act, which has yet to be repealed. So for these reasons, I have seen Muslims say, this is why I'm voting for Trump. But again, single tickets are the problem. What is our our, our problem? The bigger issue is where are we deciding that this single ticket is what's going to determine my vote? Why isn't there more invested in teaching people about the multiple issues that we need to care about? That's my concern and my question. Zephyr, you got any insight on that? Yeah, and I don't know that I do, but what I'd bring it back to, roughly speaking, and again, I'm not an expert, I'm not a political scientist, et cetera, et cetera. But this concept that I mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that the way you vote is sometimes comes through your perception of the world and a, and a particular issue. And so you might, if you're a Palestinian American, the issue you just described might be your single issue. That's the truth you've lived. You know, your grandparents have the deed to the house in the safe, but they don't have the property anymore because some settlement was built there. And so like there may be 15 other issues around tax and foreign policy and all the rest, but you can't get past that issue because that's who you are. That's what you were brought up with. And it's not unlike what I'm describing, you know, with some of the Catholic voters. Again, like if that's the single issue and somebody tells them they're going to be taxed by the, to the tune of another 8%, they say, it's worth it for me to do that because this issue is so sacred to me. And that that's been my experience growing up in that particular church, that that's what winds up mattering. And then there are other churches that are in the South or wherever, you know, rural areas where maybe they just had this view around you know, what it means to be Christian, to be like the saved people, et cetera, et cetera, or lack of exposure to other minority groups. If you look at the map, cities tend to be blue, rural areas tend to be red. And what that's telling us is like, there's an urban American experience and there's a rural American experience. And those are two different realities. 
And until those two different realities get well understood, then it becomes a difficult thing to come up with. Grievance, this is the point, I think. Grievance is extremely powerful. And when you listen to the left talking about white privilege, I think they've missed it. I think it's white grievance, not white privilege. And when we talk about an African-American jury that lets OJ off the hook, it's because the police mistreatment in the community, the use of force, the improper training of police has given that community a particular experience with the police. And they're not going to get past that, nor should they. That's a very difficult thing to get past. And so ultimately what we have, and this is why people think it's so divided, is a set of communities and a set of voters that have competing sets of grievances. And the real shame of it, to, from my perspective, is that there are lots of these different grievances that exist that people really should be able to rally around, right? So I actually think after, say, George Floyd, there would not have been many people who said, okay, okay that was okay. I think you could go to most rural place in America where they never met an African-American, I think they'd probably be like, no, that doesn't work. That guy was killed over a counterfeit bill. It's absurd, right? It's offensive, like universally. And uh, there's just enough there. I think the Trump vote brought forward that there's a set of people in America, middle America, including in the blue wall, who are white Americans who are falling behind. Cool jobs are gone. Manufacturing jobs gone to China. We haven't made the investments in their education. And let's just call a spade a spade. Trump helped us see that when nobody else was seeing that. And so now we know that there's, there's an issue here to be solved and to be addressed. And it shouldn't be treated as purely a white issue. It should be treated as an American issue, just as the police brutality should be viewed as an American issue. But I just want to say that I think that this issue of grievance is very big. And once you have a grievance, it can drive a lot of decision-making. I like that. I was kind of reaching more for the systemic privatization of our press. There's no actual free press in America providing unbiased opinions. Everybody has a slant and an agenda, it seems. Um, you know, and it happened you know, I think while we were growing up in this country, in fact, because it felt like news was more unbiased back in the 80s and 90s, and it has progressively, depending on the station, gone to one, one side, right or left, than the other. And I think it's because there's venture capitalists buying up these news stations, buying up these newspapers, and they're, whoever is in charge of the written and the disseminated word, whoever's in charge of the mics and the medias and the print, is in charge of all of the information. So if all of the information you're getting is wrong, look what QAnon has done. You know, um, look what's happened with digital, like with social media, all of the crap facts, the non-facts that have been disseminated. I feel like that's where we've gone wrong. And I feel like that's something we can change. The grievance part, it's going to take a long time. But I think this part, the dissemination of bad information that can be fixed sooner rather than later because it's still in its infancy, right? I feel like we can make a difference here. And then even with news stations and newspapers, I feel like on a national level, we can fix this. What are your thoughts on that? So if you go to the Soviet Union and they have state-run media, 
that state-run media has a particular set of incentives and directives around supporting the institution of the state. Here, you have a private media, as you're pointing out, they have a different motive, which is profits. And the profit motive can lead to a lot of sensationalism. If it, if it bleeds, it leads, as they say, because you're trying to sell advertising, et cetera, et cetera. So sensationalism can get picked up uh, in, that, in that kind of a way. But also, we tend to think of the media as driving ideas, and there's without a doubt some truth to that. But sometimes what the media is doing is picking up what it is that people think. So you'll see people say, whatever Trump says, that's what I think. <laughs> and what the media is doing in searching for an audience, searching for profits, is looking for that particular viewer and providing a media outlet for that view, viewer in the search of profits. So if what we're thinking about is just purely journalistic standards, they do exist. They exist at a high level at a number of publications. But the profit motive is always there. And that's also something that just has to ultimately be considered as part of the equation. That's a long-winded way of saying, I'm not sure that I don't think there's a free press. I think it's a, it's a press that caters by opinion or otherwise to various constituencies that exist within America. I just think we can find a better, more democratic, more responsible and accountable way where we're still disseminating information to the people, but the people are deciding who's doing it. Like, I understand the problem with state press because we've seen how dictatorships have taken advantage of that. That's not what we need in this country. But what we need is, you know, maybe the House is going to be responsible for the press and deciding who gets in. But then that press is has to have correct facts that they're putting out and there should be there should be some kind of penalty for disseminating something that's false like doing it intentionally which we know there are news stations and there yeah. is print media doing that there should be repercussions yeah. and i think so, that is possible yeah. and it the can president's be done. doing it what are we talking about the president is doing this okay so like what in the world are we talking about like so if if the head of the nation is literally but you know the weird thing is i guarantee you he could pass a lie detector test because he doesn't believe that he's lying i feel like he believes it so he would be like, I don't know what you're talking. I don't care how many facts you put in front of me. This is my version of the truth, and I'm going to stick to it. So on some level, good for him. He, he's tapped. But sorry, babe, I totally cut no, you. No, 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 you're good. He he tapped into a vein of grievance, and that's what he's done. He's found a vein of grievance, and he's tapping it, and he's sort of milking it, and unfortunately taking advantage of a set of people that you know have that otherwise legitimate grievance. But in terms of consequence for the media, you know, when we say that the house will be in charge of the media, then that's where we're gonna start drifting toward the state-run media. And I have serious concerns about that. Right now, the way that I'd love to see the consequence for the media occur is if what you do is publish a bad story, right? Like Dan Rather did uh, during the 04 election, he was dismissed like Brian Williams did. I wanna call it 08, but maybe it was 12. Then you're dismissed and you lose the viewers because you're no longer the trustworthy news outlet. But you know, if you're talking about a Fox News versus a CNN, for example, I'm just 
picking to, then while if, if Fox News lost their credibility, then they probably would lose some viewership. And what's happening to them right now is Trump's at war with them and saying, go to Newsmax, which I think is even further to the right. But let's just be fair about this. Fox actually called your great state before CNN did. And so, look, I actually happen to believe that the media does a pretty good job in this country. The reason I say that is that um, what's happening here is that the set of issues that you want in the public discourse is coming out in the public discourse. And unless these news outlets tap into that vein, then we can't have these discussions. If you were to draw up what has happened across these elections, if you're in the 65% of Muslims, American Muslims, who voted for Biden, then you might say that having Trump win one term so that this set of issues that is really abhorrent to America comes to light, gets flashed out, people start a dialogue, and then he loses on the re-election. Having lost the popular election on the first one, this all could be healthy and this could all be cathartic because the next guy who wants to come in has to now think about all that. Like, do I really want to come out and say, I don't like people who got captured because I think he, there's a very good chance that Trump loses in Arizona. And I think it, it, there's a very good chance that if he does lose in Arizona, it's going to be because of Cindy McCain. And because the guy said, I don't like people who get captured. Oh, yeah. It's deeply offensive. It's you don't deeply mess with offensive. McCain. And I think, by the way, not in this state. Yeah. And by the way, we'll have to see, as you, yeah, as you mentioned earlier or anywhere, you don't mention, you don't mess with McCain anywhere, in my view. And the same thing in Georgia. What I'm driving at here is now this guy has won. He ran four years of this policy. 70, people million, 70 million people are voting for him, but 74 million people are voting against him. And what they're really saying here is, we're not having this. Like, this is not acceptable. Like, by vote, we looked at this, we tried this out, and it's not working. And if that's the dialogue, then that would force the party to take another direction or face losing again. And so, in my view, if you're like me and you, you, you know, are not a fan of Trump, and that's putting it mildly, and the, but you weren't thrilled about <laughs> Biden either, right? Then I think, you know, what you're seeing here is that with good candidates, it can wind up happening. But all dialogue is good dialogue. All dialogue forces these issues out onto the table. How do we want to treat our American Muslims? How do we want to treat our Hispanic American Muslims? How do we want to deal with immigrants generally? How do we want to deal with illegal immigrants? And the media is helping us to force these issues onto the table so that they can be discussed. And the alternative is for them not to report on these things and not to show the views of Fox viewers. And then none of us even know that this issue is out there and it cannot be addressed. Then. The long arc of dialogue and discourse and justice is only going to come through dialogue and education. And by the way, that's exactly what you guys are trying to do here. To your point, we don't have to agree, right? Mm -hmm. That's the reality of the situation. And, and change and dialogue can only occur if we can respect everybody's viewpoints, even if we don't agree. Um, where I draw my line is where humanity and basic human rights are, but that's a whole nother top that's a whole nother podcast, and we'll talk about that in another in another day. Thank you so much for joining us today on another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Jamal Mubarak, everybody. 
Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzman Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.